Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture on this Christmas Eve. Thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas to all of you, and we hope you have a safe and wonderful holiday season. Thank you for being with us. We're going to go back and and replay some of our recent interviews on some key topics uh, that we've talked about recently here on Adams on Agriculture. You'll hear from the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall, the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association, Scott Richmond, and Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers looking back at the latest ag equipment sales numbers. But first, we're going to start things off talking about the huge challenge, the enormous challenge of feeding people this holiday season during a pandemic year. Carrie Calvert is with Feeding America, and I talked with her recently about this enormous challenge. We talked before Thanksgiving about the challenge, always in a holiday season, but especially during a pandemic year, the demand, the need is greater than ever. Give us an update where we're at going into uh, the end of this year. Uh, Sure, I am happy to. So we're continuing to see um, a significant increase in demand for for food assistance across the country. Um, As uh, as we inch closer to, um, you know, uh, people's unemployment insurance running out, or we've seen, you know, additional um, uh, weakness in the job market in communities across the country, uh, families are worried. And they're turning to food banks more and more to help them uh, feed their families. We've talked about this before, that many people who in the past have been uh, donating to Feeding America and, and the different feeding programs across the country, now many of them are in need of assistance, aren't they? That's right. Uh, we've been um, you know, serving our, our food banks and the, the agencies they work with to serve people to um, you know, try to try to track and and understand the demand for assistance. You know, there's a year over year, there's an average sixty percent increase in demand. And when we ask people, forty percent of people coming to us haven't haven't had to seek food assistance in in the past. Um, so so these are people that you know were working, were able to make ends meet before the pandemic, but haven't been able to do so since then. So the demand is up. What about the donations? So we definitely have seen a, a really strong response from communities and, and companies nationwide. Um, you know, uh, we are a generous country, and um, the people have been definitely uh, giving more financially than they have in the past. Uh, but it is not enough for us to meet the projected increase in demand. You know, we distributed um, 5 billion meals last year. That's, um, if you put it in pounds of food, that's, um, you know, I guess 6.3 billion pounds of food, you know. So demand is doubling, but we don't, are, are not projecting that we can double the amount of meals that we serve each year. You know, um, the, the amount of donations that are coming in just aren't enough for us to, um, to double the amount of, of food we're able to provide over the next year. So, uh, you know, we're, this is an unprecedented crisis that we're in, and it's going to take a multi-pronged approach. Uh, we are so thankful for people that are getting involved in their communities, whether it's to volunteer at their local food bank, to do a 
to pack boxes or to do a, a no-contact food distribution. We're so thankful for those that are hosting food drives, and, and we're thankful for those that can't afford to give financially. Um, you know, we're working to urge Congress to do their part, too. Um, you know, increases in, in federal nutrition programs like SNAP or, you know, school, school meals to help kids get meals or, um, you know, uh, emergency food for food banks or Meals on Wheels. All of these programs are, are proven to help in times of need. And, um, you know, we need that now. Carrie, how much has the pandemic impacted the number of volunteers and workers that you have? I mean, I would think some people have been leery to go out and, and be able to do some of the things that they had been doing or would like to do as far as volunteering. Right. It is. It has been a challenge for us to have enough volunteers, uh, for sure. We want to make sure um, that we're able to keep um, people that are volunteering with us safe. So we've had to, you know, redo our volunteer protocol so that we're maintaining um, social distancing in, um, in warehouses. Um, and uh, we also, um, you know, have seen less volunteers able to come in. A lot of our volunteers are, are retired and, uh, you know, they're heeding the advice of public health officials to limit their outside contact right now. So uh, when we uh, surveyed our food banks in, uh, this past October, um, 60% of Feeding America food banks said that they need more volunteers and can accept more volunteer support. So um, your listeners can go to feedingamerica.org and find a Feeding America food bank member in their area. And um, if they're able to volunteer and want to, uh, can reach out and find out how they can. We're talking with Carrie Calvert with uh, Feeding America. And Carrie, unlike a lot of um, issues, uh, challenges, and crisis where, you know, you, you can see it's a short term, you you can contribute, you can donate, you can help, and, and you see, well, okay, we're over this and we can move on. Uh, there's been a recovery. But when it comes to hunger, this is ongoing, and, and it's a daily situation, and, and meals need to be delivered, and people are in need of that food every day, and it's just ongoing. So this is a long-term issue, isn't it? You're right. Uh, it absolutely is. So, you know, 37 million people were food insecure before COVID-19. We estimate that could increase this year to 50 million people. Um, and, you know, uh, we expect and we hope that as the economy improves, as vaccine distribution rolls out, thankfully, um, and as, uh, you know, jobs return to the economy, that many of those that need our services for the first time this year are going to be able to uh, return to full-time employment and, and not need to turn to us. But for the 37 million Americans that were already food insecure, you know, whether they were struggling to find a job or couldn't work due to illness or disability, or were the working poor, you know, making uh, too much to qualify for programs like SNAP, but not enough to, to pay all their bills, um, it, you know, it's going to take longer in this economic recovery. Recessions normally hurt um, people uh, that are lower income and that are uh, less securely employed, and we don't expect this one to be any different. Um, it's going to disproportionately impact those that were already struggling, and 
I, I suspect uh, it's going to be a little while before we uh, fully understand what support might be needed, you know, in the more long-term range of, of the recovery from the pandemic to help those. That's Carrie Calvert with Feeding America. And again, we urge you to help in any way you can in helping those that are in need this holiday season and throughout the year. Stay with us. More coming up here on AOA on this Christmas Eve. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall. Zippy, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Let's talk about some of the things happening. Uh, the apparent choice of Tom Vilsack to return to USDA in an Biden administration. Your thoughts on that choice? Well, I think that's a great choice. Uh, Secretary Vilsack spent eight years there, and you know he comes there with great credentials. I mean, as being governor, great state of Iowa, big agricultural uh, state, and then of course, since since he came out of USDA, he spent some time with U.S. Dairy Export Council, and he stayed involved uh, in in the agriculture area. So, uh, Tom Vilsack's a friend of mine. Uh, we we have a good relationship. I'm really excited and looking forward to working with him again to move agriculture forward. I know you and other ag groups have been talking with members of the Biden team about ag policy, ag issues. What have you been stressing to them and what are you hearing from them? Well, uh, we, we've had the opportunity to visit Mr. Bilsack twice during the campaign. And then we've also uh, just recently uh uh, talked to Mr. Uh, Robert Bonney, who's leading the transition team in the USDA. Uh, actually, uh, Mr. Bonney and I had a conversation on the phone. He reached out to me one Saturday about three weeks ago, and I made the invitation to him to to uh, to present to the uh, uh, the Ag CEO meeting, and we had the opportunity to kind of lay some groundwork uh, for uh, uh, for our initial work with USDA when leadership gets in there. And we basically talked about some of those issues that we thought would be on their plate when they got there. We keep hearing about climate change. you think that's going to be a focus and emphasis by this administration and by this USDA? We, we think that we knew that uh, climate change uh, policy was going to be a topic, uh, regardless of how the uh, uh, election turned out. Uh, we knew that, that that topic was going to be discussed on Capitol Hill. So we have, as an organization, uh, been involved for the last year talking, um, creating coalitions to try to move forward in that area. One one uh, area, one coalition is uh, Farmers for Sustainable Future, uh, which is made up of all ag groups that will be watching policies that's being made and make sure that we can bring, uh, take a seat for the farmer and rancher to make sure that, that we're represented there. The other is uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, food and uh, food and ag climate coalition, uh, and in that group there are like-thinking agricultural groups and some groups that are not so like-thinking. And we have worked real hard over the last 
eight months uh, discovering several principles that we could agree on and work together on, and most of that is around voluntary market-based projects or policies and all of that to be done through uh, science, uh, sound science So, uh, uh, and working with our rural communities to be able to accept climate change policy in the future. So, you know, in, in those areas, we feel like that we can work together to try to form some uh, uh, legislation that will help uh, our farmers uh, uh, continue to move forward and make sure that these policies are good for agriculture and our farms rather than to the detriment of it. Because we as farmers all want to do the right thing for our climate and our natural resources, and we're all looking for that opportunity to find voluntary uh, projects that we can be involved in. Well, you used the key word there, voluntary. Uh, sometimes from the federal government, they're they seem to favor more of a mandated approach. Are you concerned about that, being able to keep this on a voluntary level? Uh, I am, uh, we, that is the one thing that we're really, really watching closely. We think that we've proven over and over and over in our history that if you present a program to farmers and ranchers that are incentive-based and voluntary, our farmers will take that initiative and, 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 and uh, embrace it and move forward and accomplish what the real goal is uh, and versus uh, mandatory by the heavy hand of the federal government. Uh, we've seen that fail over and over and over again. So we'll use those examples to talk about how important it is for it to be voluntary. And our farmers have been always been there to do the right thing, and we'll continue to do that. But voluntary is going to be the key uh, approach for us and if it gets away from voluntary, it will be very difficult for us to remain part of that. Tom Vilsack has been very active in this area, even when he was secretary before. These these were areas of emphasis for him. Uh, do you feel he's the one to kind of broker this, uh, can be a good middle ground to bring both sides together on this issue? I really think he is because, uh, you know, we have been discussing with, uh, Tom, uh, Mr. Bill Sack, uh, uh, as his time was at the U.S. Dairy Export Council about the dairy industry becoming uh, neutral. Uh, and, and, and as we talk to him about that, I hear him explain that. And I think he's a, one of the perfect people to lead that conversation and find common ground and help us to find those voluntary uh, uh, projects that our farmers can put on the ground. And a lot of the in a lot of these areas too, it's going to take a lot of private public uh, uh, partnerships to make this happen because a lot of the next projects are going to be very expensive, and we all know what a difficult time our farmers are going through. So it needs to be voluntary, and it's going to have to take some public and private money to get it done. Zippy, there's also going to be quite a few changes in key ag positions in Congress. Uh, we see right now the ongoing effort to try to get another uh, COVID relief bill passed and the struggles they're having there. What do you see moving forward, a new administration and new members of Congress, in getting past the stalemate and getting more done legislatively this coming year? Well, uh, fortunately, uh, normal, you know, in, in agriculture is the place that Congress can find common ground and come together. So, 
you know, and the issues that we deal with at American Farm Bureau around agriculture, uh, we, we have a lot of good people there that, that reach across the aisle and try to find common ground and work together. You know, Congressman David Scott's going to lead the, uh, the, the House Ag- Agriculture Committee. He's a friend of mine. He comes from Georgia. Uh, he has a, a good knowledge of agriculture there in Georgia. He's he he. Uh, I think he'll do an excellent job of trying to reach across the aisle and find common ground to do what's right for rural America and and do what's right for agriculture. So I look forward to working with uh, Congressman Scott on that. I think he'll do a good job. And of course, uh, uh, G.T. Thompson is a good friend of mine. Come from Pennsylvania, got a great background in agriculture. So I think we got a strong team there. Not not that we haven't had in the past. We have. And we never should look over the, the job that Mr. Peterson and Mr. Uh, Conaway did in the past because they both represented us well and worked very good together. Before we let you go, how are plans going for your virtual convention coming up next month? Oh, we're real excited. You know, uh, I identify this as one of the silver linings of this pandemic in the tw- uh, 2020 year. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to open our convention up to all of our members, not just the ones that are voting delegates or have the time to, to go to the convention. So every one of our members can uh, register, and, and we're also inviting the world to look inside. Uh, we're not charging a registration fee, so if you're somewhere in the world or you're a consumer or, or another ag group and you want to look inside this great organization we call the Farm Bureau Family, we are welcoming them, welcoming, welcoming them in from the from the comforts of their home. We're gonna have some great speakers, uh, and and we're also gonna show off some of the talent that works for American Farm Bureau in some of the breakout sessions. So we hope that people will listen, be informed, and inspired uh, to either become a member of Farm Bureau or be more active in Farm Bureau. All right, Zippy, good to talk with you, and again, uh, happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking with you and working with you in the coming year. Look forward to that. Thank you so much, uh, and I hope all your listeners out there have a, a, a great Merry Christmas and, and a safe one, too. Take care. Thank you, Zippy. Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. A number of state farm bureaus either have just completed or are in the process of having their state conventions right now. Pretty much all of them, I guess, virtual. Uh, but there, there's some changes in leadership at some of them as well, including in the state of Missouri. We talked recently with Blake Hurst, who, was, who retired as president of Missouri Farm Bureau. They've now had the election, and delegates to the Missouri Farm Bureau have chosen Garrett Hawkins to be their new president. He formerly worked with Missouri Farm Bureau, most recently been with the Missouri Department of Agriculture. Now he comes back to lead Missouri Farm Bureau. Stay with us. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Scott, thank you for joining us. We know that uh, 2020 has been a rough year for the ethanol industry. You've done an analysis now with the latest numbers. What has been the economic impact on the ethanol industry from COVID-19? 
Well, good morning, Mike. Uh, it's good to join you. And like you said, uh, we did t do an analysis looking back and seeing what the impact uh, of the pandemic has been. Uh, it's the end of the year, thank goodness. Uh, so it seemed like an appropriate time to uh, to sit back and take stock. And it's also a good time to do it because now we have uh, enough historical data to do that with. Sometimes when you're in the thick of it, uh, things are happening in real time. It can be difficult to conduct such analyses. So uh, we thought it was a good time to do it now. The bottom line is that from March through November, the months that we have data for, uh, the industry lost $3.8 billion uh, in revenue. And a large majority of that was uh, was from ethanol revenues, uh, both due to uh, lost volumes and uh, the price impact uh, that occurred. Uh, the worst losses, it won't be surprising, uh, occurred from uh, March through May when there were lockdowns and we experienced the worst downturn uh, in industry history. Things got somewhat better uh, over the summer, but uh, really volumes never returned to normal. And now since about uh, mid-October, uh, with the worsening of the, of the pandemic and the reimposition of restrictions, uh, we've seen another uh, leg down in fuel consumption uh, and another tick up in the, in the impact. So uh, we have a pretty resilient industry, but we've taken a, a big hit, and unfortunately the effects are continuing. $3.8 billion, that's with a B, $3.8 billion in losses this year for the ethanol industry. Now, and that's despite many plants shifting, able to produce and help produce hand sanitizers and things like that. Still, when you lose that kind of uh, fuel consumption, that that's why we have such a huge loss. Exactly. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, this was the worst downturn we've ever seen. And for a number of ethanol facilities, a number of our member companies, uh, being able to shift over, produce industrial alcohol specifically for, for sanitizers uh, was helpful and allowed them to both help their communities uh, and help their bottom lines, get the, help get them through it. But when you look at the relative sizes uh, of the markets, uh, the transportation fuel market is huge. Uh, the industrial alcohol market is a good market, but there was just no way to make up uh, for that lost volume. Unfortunately, you know, I'm calling it lost volume because it's not some sort of pent-up demand that will occur after things get back to normal. Um, you know, the, the losses in the industry uh, are something that's, that's gone forever, and, you know, 2020 is just going to go down, and the, and the record books for the industry is one that, uh, you know, where we took a big hit. We're talking with Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Even coming into this year, Scott, we had seen fuel consumption. Uh, the trends had been kind of going down. Uh, so then you add COVID in, and it just exasperated it so much with the lockdowns and, and slowdowns that have been going on. So this is going to be a concern for some time for the industry. Yeah, and you know it, it's it's interesting. 2019 uh, was was a, a little bit tough because the small refinery exemptions were having an impact on domestic demand, and then the trade tensions were having an impact on our exports, which has been a growth market uh, in in recent years. Um, 
coming into the year, we had the China Phase One trade deal. We had uh, an important court ruling uh, on uh, on small refinery exemptions uh, and a few other things. And we, we went to the National Ethanol Conference in February, feeling optimistic, and then you know things turned kind of the other way. So uh, I think there's a lot of optimism now about what uh, you know about what vaccines will be, but it's still going to be a few months before we. Uh, uh, we really get our heads above water. What's the export picture? Kind of review 2020 and your thoughts moving into a new year. Well, it, you know, it's a it's kind of a mixed picture. Exports are going to be down, you know, by probably a similar amount to percentage wise to um, to domestic consumption, uh, and for you know some of the same reasons, we've got some markets that were severely impacted by. Uh, by COVID, uh, it did not help uh, that we continued to have uh, to have trade tensions. Uh, you know, one country I'll point that out with that's kind of timely is uh, you know is with Brazil, which uh, both of those things apply to. But there were trade tensions with uh, you know with other countries. Uh, again, one of the bright spots though is there are a handful of countries uh, that were taking more uh, more alcohol, uh, more shipments from us. Uh, because of the industrial markets. So that did help to stabilize things. You mentioned Brazil. There is a tariff issue to deal with as we wrap up this year and go into 2021. Yes, and it's coming down to the wire. And, uh, you know, we should hear more uh, within a matter of, of hours, if you know, if, if not days. And the RFA will go ahead and, and make comments uh, about that publicly as that happens. But, uh, um, but you know, the, the tariff rate quota uh, that's been in place is, uh, is about to expire uh, literally as, you know, as we speak. Uh, and, you know, Brazil actually has preferred access into the United States. They have virtually no tariff. Uh, they get um, they get an advanced biofuel rent. They get the they get the premium off of that, uh, and then they get the uh, California LCFS uh, credit price for um, for for sugarcane based ethanol. So they have and they have let's call it advantaged access into the United States. All that we're asking is that we have access without having a punitive quota. Excuse me, a punitive tariff. Uh, slapped on us into Brazil. So, um, you know, I, th- I think it's a reasonable request, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how things play out uh, very very quickly. Scott, as we look at this year, we know there were layoffs, there were plants idling. Where are we with the ethanol industry here at the end of the year? Yeah, the, you know, the, the worst of it, we had, um, we had about 45 or 50% uh, consumption was about 45 to 50 percent uh, lower than year ago levels, and really kind of an average of the last three years back in April. That was the worst of it, and the industry uh, actually was very disciplined um, and curtailed production uh, by about the same amount. That's why stocks never got uh, out of hand, as happened uh, with with petroleum. Uh, and we came back out of that, and a number of facilities ratcheted up, but they were you know, a couple that closed permanently, and there are some that stayed idle, and you know, and some others that never went fully back, uh, fully back online. That is really the only reason things didn't, um, you know, conditions uh, in the industry didn't uh, weren't worse than uh, than actually was the case. 
I will mention that you know with with California re- reimposing uh, restrictions, uh, other states reimposing restrictions, and just the seasonality uh, of, of fuel demand, we are hearing almost on a daily basis uh, of facilities that are cutting back 10 percent, 20 percent. So. Um, the you know, the the impact is not over. It's going to last a few months here. Even with E15 being more available, it's been more than offset negatively by the lot the lack of uh, fuel consumption overall. Yeah, thank goodness we had E15. We had the industrial ethanol market. Uh, we've been keeping an eye on uh, Minnesota data. It, the state's one of the few that reports anything about. Uh, E15 and E15 consumption seems to be uh, to us kind of hanging in there, um, and so that's been uh, you know that's that's been a bright spot. Uh, another bright spot this year uh, was was the HBIP funding, the infrastructure funding from uh, the USDA that uh, you know that is getting out there uh, quickly and building a base for the future. So we're optimistic about E15. Uh, going forward, it's just we we took a big hit. And as the ethanol industry has helped with hand sanitizers during the pandemic, now with vaccines going out and the need to keep those vaccines cold, the need for dry ice, that comes from CO2. CO2 comes from ethanol production. So again, the ethanol industry able to help out. Yeah, we have a pretty uh, pretty pure stream of carbon dioxide that comes out of uh, out of ethanol plants, and so. Uh, some of the gas companies have been uh, keen to uh, go ahead and partner with uh, with ethanol companies to use that for the different uses of uh, of CO2 uh, in food, in dry ice, uh, in industrial processes. Uh, so uh, we've it's you know a, a nice silver lining uh, of what's happened with the pandemic that uh, a number of plants have been able to help out with their local communities. Uh, in terms of uh, providing hand sanitizer to those communities, to hospitals in the communities, to others. Uh, and we've also been able to play a critical role in uh, dry ice for some of these, uh, a couple of these vaccines that have to be cooled to extremely low, low temperatures. Certainly been a challenging year, but again, the ethanol industry has shown its flexibility and its ability to help in a number of ways, not just fuel, but certainly that's a big area, but these other areas as well. Scott, thank you for the analysis and uh, the the assessment of where the industry is here at the end of 2020. We'll hope for a much better 2021. Thank you for being with us. Thank you and happy holidays. Scott Richmond. Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. I'm Mike Adams, and this is Best in Class, brought to you by Bear DeLauro Complete Fungicide. Today we're talking with Randy Myers, Agronomic Solutions Manager for Bayer. Want to learn more about Delaro Complete. Randy, thanks for joining us. What is Delaro Complete? Well, nice to be with you. Delaro Complete is a new fungicide that we just got registered with the EPA, and we're going to be launching it then in 2021. And what we did was 
built on the strength of the laurel. That's been out there. It's, it's, it's a recent introduction. So a lot of people are, have just learned about that product, and now we're replacing it already. Well, the thing is, we're taking all the strength of the laurel and adding a third mode of action to add some incremental value to the fungicide that we're applying. So it's really a, a nice innovation that we're bringing out for 2021. So let's break that down some more. How is Delaro Complete different from Delaro? Well, the formulation is more concentrated. So what we've done is made it so that if you're used to using eight ounces of Delaro, then in eight ounces of Delaro Complete, you get the same amount of the active ingredients in Delaro Plus, an SDHI, a third mode of action that's been added to be able to add some increased value and consistency for various diseases and also to reduce the likelihood of resistance developing as we have a third mode of action. So it makes it a more complete product. So a lot of times when a new product is brought along that's an extension, then often the ratios, the active ingredients get modified somewhat for various reasons. Well, in Delaro Complete, we have all the active ingredient that Delaro had, plus we're adding an additional mode of action, another chemical, to increase the consistency. So what we're getting now is something that brings a little extra to the table when you have high disease pressure or you need to have that extra residual activity and disease control. This has been Best in Class, brought to you by Bayer Delaro Complete Fungicide. I'm Mike Adams. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Time for our monthly visit with Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, as we take a look at the latest ag equipment sales numbers. Kurt, happy holidays. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what do the latest numbers tell us? I'll tell you what, we are continuing to see some nice numbers in tractor and combine sales in, in the United States. In fact, November saw pretty much an increase across the board. Um, continuing with this trend of under 40 horsepower tractors leading the way, but I'll tell you what, we saw some nice improvement in 40 to 100, hus- 100 horsepower and 100 plus horsepower tractors as well. So good numbers for November. What really jumps out about you to you about these numbers and the trends you've seen this year? Well, I think uh, the, the what jumps out to me, if you look at the year in total, is that uh, 2020 has been a little bit of a surprise. Uh, we were we were entering into the year thinking that this was going to be uh, you know a flat year, um, perhaps even uh, you know just you know pretty pretty flat to normal. Uh, but we've seen, you know, in the case of under 40 horsepower tractors, we've seen a 20% year-over-year growth in that market. In 40 to 100 plus horsepower tractors, we've seen a 12% growth. Overall, tractors have seen a growth of about 16%. You know, largely driven by those smaller tractors, but still, in we in a year where we were expecting it to be flat, I'll take 16% growth. Mm-hmm. And the market rally here at the end of the year has certainly helped with attitudes and, and financial uh, prospects going into next year. You bet. There's a lot of things that go into, you know, into the purchase consideration for, for, uh, for new tractors and combines. And, you know, you know to, to, to complete the thought on these small tractors, I mean, a lot of that's not is non-farm usage. So those are people that are, you know, buying a tractor for their acreage or spend a little bit more time at home. 
Um, and that's that made that's that's kind of a, a little bit of an anomaly, you know, as a positive result of the uh, of the pandemic. But I'll tell you, these these row crop tractors, articulated four wheel drives, and even combines, seeing that growth really is a pretty good indication of of attitudes out there in farm country where, you know, we've seen a nice little rally in prices. We've seen some good crops around the around the nation. We see sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, perhaps some some progress on the trade front. I think we see, you know, some optimism with the pandemic ending uh, and just, you know, general, uh, you know, attitudes and in, in, uh, uh, appreciation for where food comes from tends to boost the morale of farmers out there. And, and that's uh, making people feel comfortable to invest in their equipment, invest in their capital equipment. We're talking with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, what? would be a disturbing trend or an area of concern that you would have as we head into a new year? Well, I'll tell you one thing that, that, that uh, you know, I think we learned, you know, seven years ago when we saw markets on fire, just, just you know, everything was looking really good, is that we kind of set the bar in saying this becomes a new normal. And I think what we do have to be a little bit cautious of is recognize that, you know, and specifically in these smaller horsepower tractors, this may be an anomaly. Um, I mean, obviously, that market's been growing for years, but it hasn't been growing at this rate. And so I think what we have to recognize is that, uh, that uh, you know, we're still in a replacement market. Uh, you know, we're still the vast majority of, of tractors and combine are, are purchased for, uh, for row crop producers. Uh, and those markets are volatile. Those markets are, uh, you know, come at the, uh, at the mercy of a lot of things beyond their control. Having said that, good farmers, good businessmen uh, are making good capital decisions. Farm income is showing, you know, some really strong signs of life in 2020. Much of that's government support, but I think there's also some underlying principles that, that may lead to, you know, continued optimism for farm income in 2021 and beyond. Did the business model change this year? Didn't have the farm shows, uh, didn't have people out in big crowds looking at equipment like we've had in the past. Hopefully we'll be getting back to that soon. But has the way dealers done business, has the industry changed? Uh, any of those changes do you think will, will stick around even after the pandemic? Well, I think uh, without question, farmers like to get together at events, farm shows, you know, conferences. And and looking forward to to being face to face with farmers in the in the very near future, but what we I think we have learned is that we can do business virtually in in the farms community in the farm space, and I think some of those trends are going to continue. Uh, specifically, as, it, as we talk about some of this new cutting edge technology that shows up in tractors and combines and all kinds of equipment, um, that tech support. Uh, being able to, you know, giving a farmer access to sort of the best-in-class tech support, perhaps remotely, is a real great opportunity that I think will continue on, you know, once this pandemic clears, where we'll see a lot more uh, kind of that technical support done virtually because it gives the farmer access to some of the some of the best people in the nation and the world to be able to to solve some of those problems. So that's kind of a good thing. But I think, you know, nothing beats kicking tires. And I think what we are sort of recognizing is that, uh, you know, everyone, everyone does want to see this new technology in person. They've, they've uh, you know, kind of continuing to involve their, evolve their relationships with, uh, with their farmers and their, or with their distributors and their dealers. But I think when we, when we get back together face-to-face, I think you're going to see, you know, a renewed interest in the technology and the ability to show off this technology 
that uh, that uh, will will be in place for years to come. So it's pretty darn exciting. But yeah, there are some there's some there's some changes in the business model of how we how we communicate, but nothing beats face to face. Well, we'll talk again next time we talk. It'll be 2021. Uh, we'll we'll have some more review of 2020. It's been an incredible year, a challenging year, we know, in many ways, and uh, things we never thought we would see, we've seen. But uh, the the numbers you've given us each month, we've said this many times, uh, all things considered have been pretty good. All things considered, they've been pretty good. I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, to closing up the year strong. I mean, I think anytime you know, if you would have asked me on January 1 how we were going to end the year, I'd be happy with the numbers you're giving me right now. So uh, I'm optimistic. All right, Kurt. Thanks a lot. Happy holidays to you. We'll talk again next month. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, joining us here on AOA. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe.